first reading is taken from Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, which can be found on page 50 in your church Bible. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestor has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says, said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. It can be found in your church Bible on pages 93 and 94. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. Yet you do not receive our testimony if I have told you about earthly things. And if you don't, do not believe, how can you believe? If I tell you about heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life.
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his send the Son of into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he were into that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not only do not believe are condemned already, because they do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come to the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do not do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds has been made done in God. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, uh, IPC, uh, I would say by any measure, is a very diverse group of people. I, I don't know that anyone has actually uh, counted but we like to tell people that at least two dozen nationalities gather uh, on any given Sunday morning. And as I look around, that seems about right to me. Uh, but whether or not it's true, we are a very diverse congregation, and wonderfully so. But even with all of that diversity, uh, we do have a few things in common. We all speak uh, English, for example. Some of us uh, count it as our mother tongue. Uh, others of us do not. But we come together on Sundays to worship using the English language. So that's one of our common bonds. But we have other traits and, and, and bonds in common, and we have one that you may not have thought about, and, and that is we all have names. At some point, uh, very early in our lives, we were given a name. Most of us had no choice in the matter. Uh, we were not consulted. No one approached us with a catalog, and, you know, which one looks good to you. Uh, instead, our parents, or maybe it was our grandparents, or uh, someone who uh, took care of us, uh, someone gave us the gift of a name, and we have carried this with us throughout uh, our lives. Uh, the custom has mostly disappeared now, but a, a central part of baptism at one time, I don't know if you uh, were aware of this or not, but a central part of baptism at one time was the giving of the name, what we used to call uh, christening. Your Christian name used to be the name that you were given at your baptism, and today is, uh, you know, it's simply your first name. Uh, in the early days of the church, new converts to the faith uh, often assume Christian names as, as, as part of their total immersion in the Christian faith. So they would receive uh, lengthy catechetical instruction, uh, they would put on a white baptismal gown, and they would get a new name, and, and when it was finished, when they came up out of the waters of baptism, they knew that they were a different person, uh, different from the one who had gone under those same waters. And, and for centuries, in the Roman Catholic baptismal liturgy, the priest would meet the parents and the godparents and the baby at the door, and, and the priest would ask, what name do you give to your child? And after the parents answered this and a few other questions, the family moved into the church for the rest uh, of the baptismal liturgy. I had a colleague in ministry one time who, who used to say to parents uh, uh, near the beginning of the baptismal liturgy, name this child. 
And uh, she said it with kind of a stern uh, look. And the parents uh, would be startled as if to say, well, we've already done that. You know? uh, sometimes during the baptism, uh, I ask parents, what is this child's name? And, and the parents sometimes look hurt and offended as if to say, don't you know? I, uh, I, I, have you forgotten already? Uh, but of course, it's part of the liturgy. Baptism has always been, at least in part, uh, about assuming a new identity. Right? We, we become, in our baptisms, uh, we become someone new in Christ. And I think this is important uh, to see because of what we're going to be talking about today. That new identity is often expressed in the name. My parents tell me that before I was born, they chose uh, two names, a boy's name uh, and a girl's name because at the time there were uh, no such thing as uh, ultrasounds. And uh, no way of knowing in advance. Uh, there was a lot of guessing and, and so on, but no way of, of knowing for sure. Anyway, the boy's name that they chose for me was obviously uh, Douglas, but the girl's name, aren't you curious uh, uh, to know? <laughs> uh, the girl's name was Karen, and uh, I, I just ask you not to think too much about that. Uh, but so, uh, this custom of giving names is not unique to Christians. Anthropologists say that the, the custom dates all the way back to the earliest human beings. Uh, our earliest ancestors named their children, often uh, with great care, names in some cultures. Uh, some cultures especially have enormous uh, significance. Uh, this year, I, I read that more than 120 million babies are going to be born around the world, and of those who survive their birth, we happen to live in a part of the world where most babies do survive their birth. Uh, but those who survive their birth will undergo this initiation process of receiving a name. Uh, and I want to spend some time with you this morning thinking about what it means to have a name. And in particular, what it means that God has a name. Uh, we're five weeks long in uh, a sermon series about what Christians believe, a series that is going to take us all the way to Holy Week, and, and today I want to look with you at the nature and character of God. No small thing, right? Uh, last week, Sam introduced us to this idea that God has some uh, wonderful and unique qualities and characteristics, and then next week we're going to take a look at creation and providence, the, the two jobs uh, that God the Father has, theologically speaking. Uh, but today, I, I want to look with you uh, at that story from Exodus chapter 3 and examine together what it means that God has a name. Uh, that Moses dared to ask God right, for his name. Uh, we sometimes think, uh, uh, we sometimes take this part of the story for granted, but uh, I want you to see this morning that it is extraordinary. Uh, by way of background, I think you should know that God and Moses had a, an unusual relationship. Uh, a relationship that was characterized by closeness and uh, intimacy and even friendship. Uh, toward the end of Exodus, this is in chapter 33 if you're uh, curious, we read that God spoke to Moses face to face as one would speak to a friend. That's uh, how the story uh, there puts it. So, this closeness and intimacy is emphasized all the way through the story, uh, from the beginning of Exodus to the end. And it's hard to imagine another biblical character. Think about this. Maybe you can think of a counterexample, but it's hard to imagine 
another biblical character who has this unique relationship with God. Uh, I suppose you could argue that Jesus did, but that relationship uh, exists in a different category altogether. Well, here's something else I want you to see about the relationship between God and, and, and Moses. Uh, Moses, not sure how to put this exactly, Moses could be cheeky. Uh, I hope it's okay to use that word in, in this connection. Moses was surprisingly direct and honest with God. The story for today takes place at the burning bush where, where God gives Moses the job of leading the people out of Egypt. And it's almost as though Moses says, not aloud, but you can sense his calculation here. It's almost as though Moses says, okay, if I'm going to do this thing that seems totally impossible to me, way beyond my capability, if I'm going to do this, then you and I are going to have to work very closely together. Right? I need something from you. Right? In a sense, it's a bargain that, that Moses is making. The, the, the first time I interviewed for a job in, uh, in a church, the senior pastor invited me to uh, stay with him at his home in his guest bedroom, and I was kind of hoping for a, a hotel room, but he said, uh, you know, if we're going to work together, uh, then uh, I want to know what it's like to live together. And I'm not sure it made sense to me at the time, but looking back, I can see the wisdom in, in what he did. If we're going to work together day after day, if we're going to make hard decisions together, if we're going to find a way to trust each other, then we should be able to sit down and eat breakfast together, right? Or something like that. Moses wanted to know, and you could say that he demanded to know who God was. I think it's extraordinary. I said that Moses was cheeky, and, and, and what I was referring to is that Moses uh, raised objection after objection to doing this work that, that God had called him to do. Uh, I've always thought that if God appeared to me and, and gave me a job to do, uh, I would say, uh, okay, pretty quickly. You know, end of conversation. Uh, but not Moses, three times. He raises an objection, and the third time, you can find this in chapter 4, the third time we read that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. All right, their first fight. All right, and, and it was not going to be their last. Uh, I once heard someone say that Moses and God had, uh, I think there was a, a preacher uh, uh, said that Moses and God uh, sound like a couple who have been married a long time. Uh, I love this story. It's one of my favorites. It was the very first story that uh, I ever preached about, and I have come back to it again and again over the years, and partly uh, that's because this is a call story, and, and all pastors are very interested in, in the call stories of, of Scripture. But mostly I was interested in this story because it's a story about a relationship between God and a human being. I mean, you could say that this story shows us how it's done. When it's good and, and when that relationship is healthy and when it's growing and thriving, this is what it looks like. Right? There, there is more open and direct communication here between God and Moses than in lots of marriages I know. Both Moses and God act as though the relationship matters. Right? As though their opinions need to be heard and as though there is something enormous at stake. Well, back to the beginning of the story. When, when God uh, speaks to Moses uh, out of the burning bush, God says, and these are important words for us to hear, uh, God says, I have observed the misery of my people. 
who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I think what we're supposed to see here is that God is affected by what happens to us. The Bible does not tell us that God is indifferent and distant and uncaring. God is moved by what happens to us. God grieves when we suffer and God is determined not to leave us in our suffering. In adult education, we're having a series of classes right now about Israel. And last week I taught a single class about Islam, which is a major factor in Israel's life right now, both internally and externally. And and even though there wasn't as much time to explore the subject as I wanted to, I was able to say this much. The God we meet in the Quran is so very different from the God we meet in the Bible. I mean, I don't agree with the statement that we both worship the same God, and I don't know of many biblical scholars or theologians who would agree with that statement, even though it would be nice, wouldn't it, if we could just say something like that. It would would solve so many problems. But I don't agree with that statement because we believe in such a vastly different kind of God. There is nothing or almost nothing in the Quran about a God who cares and grieves and suffers and loves and shows compassion and so on. But that is the God we meet in the Bible, and that is the God we meet in this story, and that is the God I am trying to introduce to you today. And so Moses says in response to that, if I come to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And that, as you might imagine, is quite a question. I mean, what is your name? Who are you? What is your identity? What should I tell others about you? So here we are at the theme that I introduced at the the beginning of my sermon. What does it mean to have a name? When you tell someone your name, what are you revealing about yourself? At the beginning of worship today, during the welcome, I introduced myself as I always do. And I said, my name is Doug, and and that's Sam. and, And what I was doing was inviting you to a relationship. One of our Swiss members explained to me that the name Doug, uh, to most uh, Swiss ears, sounds a lot like dog, which helps to explain why I had so many odd looks the the first time I introduced myself in this country, so sometimes I say my name is Douglas, even though that sounds very formal to me. But either way, when I tell you my name, I I am inviting you to know me. It is the beginning of a relationship. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but when Jesus meets the men who were to become his, his closest friends, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, he gives them nicknames. Uh, Cephas becomes Peter or the rock, and James and John become Vonires, a, a Greek word meaning sons of thunder. What, what wonderful names. I, I, I know a little bit about what Peter means, and most of you do too, I, I'm guessing. I'm not altogether sure about Sons of Thunder, but at, at a very basic level, there was an intimacy that was expressed. So here in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, God says to Moses, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. 
He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Right, well this is an extraordinary moment, and and not just in the relationship between God and, and Moses, but between God and everyone. Right, who would ever want to have a relationship with him. Our God has a name. Right, just like I do, and just like you do, we can know this God, or at least something about this God. We can speak to this God. As many of you know, the people of Israel treated this name with great care and reverence. The, the name was never spoken aloud, and, and for that reason, we, we don't know today exactly how it should be pronounced. We certainly have an idea, but there is this uncertainty born of reverence. Uh, when people are reading the, the Hebrew text and, and they come upon the Hebrew word for I am, the, the, the ordina- they ordinarily substitute the Lord or Adonai and I mean, not speaking the name is a way of reverencing the name. Which I've always thought was kind of curious, uh, to be honest. I mean, God gave us the name as a form of intimacy, but in response, human beings, out of reverence, uh, I mean, his, his people chose not to say it aloud. Well, here's what I would like for you to, to, to remember today. And I can summarize this in, in, in two words, two important words from classical theology, which I think we should know. Uh, imminence and transcendence, right? Both of which, by the way, are on display in this story, and it's, it's almost as though you can't have one without the other. They are inseparably linked. Uh, God's imminence, we say, is God's nearness and, and, and God's availability, and, and you can know this God, and, and this God certainly wants to know you. This God wants to be in relationship with you. This, this God suffers when you are suffering, and, and this God can be irritated by you. Right, as Moses discovered very early in the relationship. But this God is also loyal and unconditional in, in his love. You, you can be irritating, but God is not going to go away. Uh, okay, but there's more. I mean, God, we say, is, is, is something totally other, uh, something mysterious, maybe even fearful. When the Bible says that God's ways are not our ways, the Bible is talking about God's transcendence, his mystery. I suppose that when a a bush bursts into flames in the Sinai desert but doesn't disintegrate in seconds into a pile of ashes, that's a a signal of something. That's God's transcendence. God told Moses to take his shoes off, as as Sam mentioned, because Moses was on holy ground. And this is an ancient rite of vulnerability and, and, and respect. And there are a couple of other places in the Old Testament where it happens again. Moses was in the presence of uh, an almighty and all-powerful God. And God was signaling His majesty and His holiness in that moment. So there you have it. You know, God is, is imminent and transcendent. God is uh, approachable and at the same time powerful and majestic and the maker of all things visible and invisible, as the creed puts it. That's the God we believe in. Right? That's the God we call out to when everything seems lost. On the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22 and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the God we are angry with when, when, when things do not go our way. How could a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? That's the God who asks far more of us than we think we are capable of. That's the God who believes in us, who, who sees in us far more capability and far more gifts than we see in ourselves. 
That's the God we worship here every single Sunday. That's the God we sing about in our hymns. That's the God we pray to in our weekly prayers. That's the God who knows all about you and your life even when you are paying no attention to Him whatsoever. Right? That's the God who, like the Father in, in Jesus' parable, stands in, in, in the road with His arms wide open to receive us after we have been off in a far country squandering everything, including our own dignity and self-esteem. That's the God we meet in Scripture. In stories like the one we read today, but also in stories scattered throughout the Bible. God says, I have seen your suffering, and I have come down to deliver you. And here's the question that I leave with you today. What do you say in response to that? Will you pray with me? Let us pray. Gracious God, we are touched and overwhelmed that you would introduce yourself to us. That you would offer us a name whereby we could know you and have a relationship with you. In response to that, we open ourselves to you. In response to that, we listen for your call in our lives. In response to that, we offer our whole selves to you. May the purpose of this morning for us be that response that we become your faithful followers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.